Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Every few months, you get a real treat, an opportunity to listen to Peterson Toscano as he guest hosts Spirit in Action for me. And today is a real treat time. I first interviewed Peterson relative to his work as a performing artist not long after his rich commentary through a one-actor piece called Do in Time in the Homo Nomo Halfway House. I was impressed by his The Reeducation of George W. Bush, and then by his biblical scholarship and insights, and for years now, his passion and dedication to fighting climate change. But, as those of us who know Peterson Toscano would have certainly predicted, he does it without railing and pontificating, but instead by insightful exploration, creativity, and sometimes humor. I encourage you to go to petersontoscano.com, linked, of course, on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website all over the place, to tap into a number of the gifts that Peterson offers to the world. But Peterson has dedicated the vast portion of his time since 2014 to addressing climate change, first with his Climate Stew podcast and since 2016 with his Citizens Climate Radio programs. As you'll know by the end of today's show, Peterson does this addressing in intriguing and pizzazzful ways, and he isn't afraid to travel in order to get the scoop. But I'll let Peterson Toscano tell you of his peregrinations himself as he sits in for me today for Spirit in Action. It's all yours, Peterson. Let's have some transition music as we head from Wisconsin over to Pennsylvania. Thank you, Mark. I feel so grateful to be back as guest host of Spirit in Action. I have been considering a question for some time. It's one that you may be thinking about too, or perhaps you never thought about it before. But here's the question. What's your role on this new Earth? The planet has changed since I was born, not just politically, with changing borders and shifting values. It's also changed physically we've already begun to feel the effects of climate change. People have been temporarily or permanently relocated. Climate change is something we can't ignore. It also doesn't help to get stuck in the paralysis of fear and hopelessness. As host of Citizens Climate Radio, I often remind myself and my listeners, action is the antidote to despair. But what action should we take? What do we feel called to do? In the second half of today's show, you will meet Robin Boardman. He's a university student in England who recently interrupted his studies so he could interrupt the city of London. He's part of the group Extinction Rebellion. Last month, they took over bridges and intersections in London and other major cities. But they're not just a bunch of angry protesters. They have a very clear mission. Robin will share their goals and the values that ground them. We will also hear from a young woman who moved to Hawaii. 
she didn't just come to enjoy paradise, although you will hear how much she does. No, Nicole Chatterson also came because she has a thing for trash. She talks about plastic pollution washing up on the shores and all over the seas. In response, she's looking for action that goes beyond lowering our carbon footprints. She has big ideas for policy changes that will make a difference. Oh, and I have some fiction for you. As part of my monthly Citizens Climate Radio program, I interview artists. In the art house today, you will meet Marissa Slavin. She wrote the novel Code Blue. Much like the Harry Potter series, this was one of those books I could not put down. It's not simply good cli-fi. Oh, it is. But it's also a coming-of-age eco-mystery. But first, I want to share with you a story I produced back in February. You will hear I had a terrible cold when I recorded my part of the segment, but don't worry, I'm feeling a lot better now. Today, we're going to look into one young man's passion for a special place, for his home. To do so, we need to travel to a tropical island. Our main story today takes place in the Republic of the Philippines. Made up of over 7,500 islands, it is one of the most vulnerable countries in the world when it comes to climate change. Typhoons that keep getting bigger and sea level rise threaten the 12th most populated country in the world. While the economy is growing, there are still limited opportunities for Filipinos. As a result, approximately 10% of the population lives and works overseas. And many Filipinos are young. Half the residents are younger than 23. I recently spent a month in the Philippines. I traveled between islands on large ferries and some terrifyingly small boats. I explored various Filipino cultures, devoured traditional foods, and spoke with many people about their lives on these beautiful islands. I met at least five different men who worked six to eight months at a time on ships internationally. I spoke with women who worked as nurses, home care aides, and nannies in the Middle East, Europe, and the USA. As it was the Christmas and New Year's holidays, many of these returned home, lugging large cardboard boxes filled with gifts. In many of our conversations, we talked about climate change, and one big storm in particular. According to EcoWatch, the deadliest storm on record in the Philippines is Typhoon Haiyan, known locally as Typhoon Yolanda. It was responsible for more than 6,300 lost lives, more than 4 million displaced citizens, and $2 billion in damages in 2013. I confess I heard the story of Typhoon Yolanda back in 2013, but I didn't know what to do other than feel sad for the pain and suffering of the people far from me and donate a little bit of money. It was one of a string of terrible climate events. In the U.S. media, the story was quickly buried in the news cycle, and I heard little bit about it after it occurred. As I began to study climate change in 2014, I learned more about the growing dangers the people of the Philippines face as climate change accelerates. As climate advocates, we want to understand and communicate how climate change affects all of us. But millions of people on over 7,000 islands, 
that can be hard to envision unless you are there or you know someone directly affected. When a story is too big to grasp, sometimes it helps to begin with just one piece of it. If I cannot comprehend the impact on thousands of islands, perhaps I need to start with just one. Lucky for me, I found myself on Pandan Island. Expect nothing of the ordinary, <laughs> I guess. That's Gael Henry Carlot. He grew up on Pandan Island. Uh, don't expect any like uh, electrical appliances um, or yeah comfort. It's just you have a roof. Uh, you live in a hut. Uh, you have water, running water, but it's um, sumatre. It's uh, half salty, half uh, uh, fresh water. So we don't have fresh water on the island. There's no water table. We've tried looking for water, fresh water, but it didn't work. So every day we have to take the water from town uh, by boat and fill up some uh, some t- tanks, and then we distribute it in the in the bungalows. And for electricity, we have a solar panel, or all bungalows is equipped with a, a solar panel and a battery. Gael's father is from France, and his mother is from Iloilo in the Philippines. They fell in love and, in 1986, settled on Pandan Island. Their goal has been to protect the extraordinary coral reef that surrounds the island and then share it with others. While this is no five-star hotel, it was plenty comfortable with a bed that has views of the ocean, opportunities for snorkeling and diving all day, and a lively bar at night. Oh, and the food is amazing. Pandan Island is a 15-minute boat ride to the large town of Siblayan Mindoro. Still, Gael had a pretty rustic life growing up. Even though climate change had already become a reality in the Philippines, Gael heard little about it. Because, uh, honestly, before, we didn't have any internet. We didn't have a lot of electricity. So computer wasn't our, you know, main activity like to well just for reservation basically but I was spending most of my time just playing and looking at the the fishes and the turtles which I just saw actually just just on the beach <laughs> just at 10 meters from the, the shore so I wasn't really aware we talked about it I mean we hear it from tourists coming here especially tourists from Europe but the Filipino we don't really know that I'm talking 20 years ago when I was young uh, but we were aware that like the climate was changing. People were talking about like a uh, stronger typhoon, and we are in the you know forefront of all typhoons <laughs> from the the Pacific. Just to set the scene for you, Gael and I had this conversation on the front porch of the cabana where I stayed with my husband Glenn. It was Glenn's idea to travel to the Philippines, so I'm very grateful to him for making this happen. In front of us is a path lined with lemongrass that the chef used for some of his dishes. Coconut trees and all sorts of palm trees provided shade. Each day I woke up, walked directly onto the beach, and plunged into the crystal clear waters teeming with fish and coral. I asked Gael about the wildlife here. Uh, the wildlife. Like I said before, there was no water, so... Here in the island before, there was not many birds, for one. So we kind of changed the ecology about that, to be, to be honest. Because we planted like we planted the papaya, we planted some fruits, and eventually it became the food of um, 
of uh, avifauna, so the birds. We we supply fresh water for birds so they can grow in population, which is great because now we have at least 25 to 30 different species of bird. And we have some tourists sometimes coming here to watch, to watch a bird, and they're impressed of, uh, of the, the diversity because you don't really have that in an island where you have no water. <laughs> And underwater, well, underwater, it's been protected. Uh, the marine protected area was started in '91, thanks to uh, tourists who came here. And we were protecting already the, the reef, but without any enforcement of law. So we were just basically telling the fishermen not to fish here, and we were telling them, but it was a hard conflict <laughs> to have. And in the end, there's a German guy who works for the development agency, GIZ. They work a lot in the Philippines to actually create protected area so the, um, the people can have a sustainable life, especially the fishermen, so they can fish around um, the reef and not have to go like all the way out in open sea. The efforts paid off. The reef is bursting with life, and even large fish are coming back, a sign of a healthy reef. But it was in 2017 that started. There's a, a couple of uh, black-tipped shark. So a uh, reef shark that nested here, uh, gave, birth, gave birth to like six uh, or seven uh, small sharks. And that means that our ecosystem is actually really improving and we reached to a point that, that the, the, top, um, the species on top of the food chain are living around the reef. So that's uh, the best thing that we can actually expect from our protection. Gael grew up on the island, then left to study first in Manila, then in France. I mean, having high school and grew up a bit in Manila and in the province, you know, you know, like the hard life of the Philippines. At the same time, like the um, the high, fast, you know, growing economy in Manila, and same time, like, the simple life of a, a fisherman village in an island. And when I went to study, then it was like much more like faster and more like urban and and developed in Manila. But I was just kind of like, you know, just going with the flow and trying to have a simple life in France without wanting to live like the other people. Uh, I left the Philippines to study um, environmental science, more in biology and ecology. And then when I finished that, then I did a master's degree on water, water science and more specifically in how to treat the water and what causes like health problem in, if the water is polluted. He sees how many Filipinos strive for the comfort and luxuries that are common in Europe and the USA. While in France, he saw people very sympathetic to an ecological lifestyle, but unable to fully embrace it. In the Philippines, everyone is usually poor, so everyone wants to have a, a better lifestyle, and that means uh, showing off like how much money you have, and that means also like getting a house, getting a car, and driving around, you know, and going to Jollibee, or Jollibee is a local version of McDonald's. And that's, that's like, their goal, or it feels like that's that's what they want to do. In Europe, people already have that, and they want to go back, but it's uh, hypocrite. Uh, it's hard to say in English. <laughs> Hypocritical. Hypocritical. Um, because they want to be more ecological, but in the end, they also want to um, have their comfort. I don't think like all of them wants to change their lifestyle, uh, like dramatically. I, I left France because I, I didn't feel like I wanted to have a loan and have a car in a house that just didn't 
it's not gonna make me happy so <laughs> so I left so I left I'll probably be back but just for traveling and see my friends Gael's father passed away last year so his mom and brother have been running the resort I came back to help my brother and keep this in uh, environmental friendly uh, village uh, as it is and hopefully be able to l- teach uh, local people uh, help them be more aware of like the environment and eventually maybe help the government if they're willing to to listen or give an op- open space like to other people like citizens to actually help out Since the mid-1980s, Gael's family and friends have lovingly looked after this island and the coral reef. They nursed it back to health and ensured there were legal protections in place to conserve it. In a time of climate change, though, with bigger storms and sea level rise, the island is at risk. Like many people living on coastlines, they will have to consider a possible future evacuation. Uh, Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm not... Even my dad told me that we might not be here in the island anymore. Three or maybe five centimeter like increase of of, of uh, water level, and that actually like and during typhoon we would already have like you know big waves like <laughs> coming to the to the bungalows and we might have nothing anymore. But I guess you know we have to deal with it and just kind of enjoy life while we have it. <laughs> enjoying life while we have it. This is a message that came up not only in my conversation with Gael, but with almost everyone I spoke with who lived and worked on Pandan Island. While not everyone has the pleasure and challenges that come from living on a tropical island, Gael believes the pursuit of happiness is essential in life. But yeah, I guess um, life can be much easier by just just enjoying you know, living and again, I can say this because I live in an island where I can be with my, I could be with my brother and work with my, my brother and my mom and be close to the people who work with me because there's a mutual respect. This is my experience. I mean, to all the listeners or, or the audience, I'm sure that each one of us can find a place where we feel at home working with people who are interested, who are just like us, who wants to do more to share to enjoy and be happy you know in our workplace and at home now it is time for the art house Joining us in the art house is writer Marissa Slavin. She wrote the novel Code Blue. In it, a teen uses her problem-solving skills and love of science to unravel two big mysteries. Set in the future on a U.S. coastline that is rapidly collapsing, Marissa's book is surprisingly hopeful. What's amazing in this future world is that despite all the problems, all the countries of the world have united and created something called the International Change Agreement, where they've decided to dedicate a lot of their resources to battling climate change. 
And one of the key things that they've done is created science schools and opportunities for the best and brightest young people all around the world to study science and uh, help move forward in making the world a better, more livable, sustainable place for everybody. The main character is named Atlantic, or Tick for short. Atlantic is a smart young woman who's interested in science, but she also has other interests. She likes reading. She likes nature. She has a very few but very uh, close, uh, loyal friends. She interacts with people and animals in a really kind and compassionate way. Uh, she works part-time in a nursing home and uh, lives next to a, a farm and so gets lots of chance to have a close personal relationship with nature as well. In addition to creating compelling characters who develop throughout the novel, Marissa draws the reader in with problems that need to be solved and with secrets that need to be revealed. She considers her book an eco-mystery. It's eco because there's a lot of environmental going on, and there's actually two mysteries that are, are being solved throughout the course of the book. Uh, so one is that as part of uh, Tick's school project, she is working on ice melt rates, and it seems like the ice is melting even faster than uh, models uh, had projected and predicted. And so there's a bit of a mystery as to, to why that's happening. Uh, faster than expected. The other mystery is a much more personal mystery to Tick. Tick's father died before she was born, and he was a hydrologist also studying ice melt and died in an accident uh, in the North Atlantic. What Tick comes to uh, suspect over the course of the novel is that perhaps her father's death wasn't accidental. And so she starts to investigate the mystery surrounding her father's death with some surprising results. Certainly, Tick has some similar experiences to my own in terms of, uh, you know, being very interested in science. I wanted to show that it takes intelligence to make a difference, but that it also takes compassion. And, and I think those qualities in Tick are, are sort of a balance of qualities that I feel that, that I have. Marissa will provide a little background about the scene in her book, Code Blue. Then she will read a short excerpt. Tick and her friend, male friend, Lee, have gone out at night in a forest on a mountaintop, and they've fallen asleep there. Tick, Tick, wake up. Lee sounds upset. Do you smell something? I open my eyes, and I don't know where I am for a minute. I must have dozed off, too. It's dark, and Lee is leaning over me, gently shaking my shoulder. Tick? Tick, I smell smoke. Ree, ree, ree. At the sound of the siren, I sit up so fast my right shoulder slams into Lee's chest before he can move out of the way. Even though it's te 
technically healed, it still hurts. I'm already on my feet, though. There's no time to waste. It's a forest fire, I say, and I see tendrils of smoke creeping out from the trees off to my left. Which way, Lee asks. I don't know, I say, scanning the glade, a bubble of panic rising up in my chest. But we have to try to get back to the academy. We've got to head uphill. I stand up and try to get my bearings, each heartbeat a moment too long to wait. I walk in a circle, forcing myself to go slowly and pay attention. I feel for the slight gradient in the ground beneath us, and when I find it, I grab Lee's hand and head up to the forest edge. I find the entrance to the path between two birch trees. This way, I say. Once in the wood, I lead, and Lee follows a few steps behind on the narrow path. I shine my tablet light on the path at my feet, but I'm barely registering the visual path because of my speed. After walking through the woods around New Hope Town all of my life, my feet just know how to avoid rocks and roots. I try to ignore the sound of the fire, like a freight train in the distance, and the heat I can feel prickling the back of my neck. Every once in a while, I look back to see if I can see any flames, but so far there's only smoke that's getting thicker by the second. The siren blasts again, my unofficial timekeeper, and I think and hope that we're five minutes closer to safety. Lee and I don't talk. Instead, we cough sporadically and keep pressing uphill. I try not to think about what will happen if we don't make it out of here, but my imagination goes to those dark places. I imagine Mom getting another phone call, this one from Nessa, saying there's been an accident, and I can't even imagine past the phone call. I can't. I can't let that happen to mom. Stop it, I tell myself. Focus. All my attention must be on the narrow winding path. I'm navigating uphill as fast as I can in spite of the increasingly thick smoke. The heat's getting more intense, and sweat streams off my forehead and into my eyes. I glance back again over my shoulder, my eyes stinging from sweat and smoke. I can't see more than a few blurry feet behind me now. I can't see Lee. To find out what happens next, you need to get your own copy of Code Blue. Once you read it, you will want more. The good news is Marissa loves working as a writer and has carved out time from her busy schedule to write a sequel. It's called Code Red. Marissa tells us how you can get a copy of her book, Code Blue. Probably the easiest thing is on Amazon. I also have a website, marissaslaven.com. Coming up in the second half of Spirit in Action, we travel to Hawaii and discover how much of our trash preceded us there. Also, Robin Boardman of Extinction Rebellion describes what it was like to shut down London's Blackfriars Bridge. You'll hear about the moral imperative behind the fierce actions of this rebel force. And we'll get back to Peterson Toscano and his reporting for Citizens Climate Radio in just a moment. And as you can tell, he's a total artist in conveying to you the rich insights of his exploration, which is why I'm so thankful to have him guest host for Spirit in Action periodically. On the NordenSpiritRadio.org site, you'll find several links to Peterson, and his monthly podcast is available under the programs menu. 
and lots more stuff. Links to and info about all of our Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul guests of the past 14 years. Links to the stations nationwide that carry our programs. And I want to say up front that I'm really hoping that you're digging into your pocket to support the amazing community radio stations that carry these programs. We're lucky to have that kind of up-close, personal, and accountable music and news in our communities. So dig deep and give generously. Of course, I also want you to support Norton Spirit Radio if you've got sufficient resources, but community radio first. We've got a donate button on northernspiritradio.org and a way for you to comment on and rate our programs. Go ahead and do that post-haste. And then we'll head back to part two of today's program with Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. Back over to you, Peterson. Meet Nicole Chatterson. Originally from Southern California, Nicole has embraced the outdoors of Hawaii. On a gorgeous day, we met in a park in Honolulu to chat. In the background, you'll hear birds and a neighborhood baseball game going on. With so many options of things to do, I asked Nicole, how does she spend a day off in paradise? Usually in the mountains or at the ocean. Today I was torn, should I surf or should I go play in these beautiful, clear, crisp mountains today? How different from Palmdale, California, where she grew up? I grew up in inland Southern California in the high desert, so no water, lots of tumbleweeds, Kind of a suburban spill-off of L.A. She tells me Palmdale is the methamphetamine production capital of Southern California. It also was a place where she saw a lot of trash. I grew up in an area that was about a mile away from the dump. And so I watched this, this mountain basically being erected that was full of all of our crap. Then you had to pay to dump items of a certain size. You know, if your couch, your old mattress. Because we live so close to the dump, people would come and just dump stuff. Basically right across the street from our house because they couldn't afford to put it in the dump. When I went out to explore and there was like a, a water heater and some buckets of paint. And, and then there's like, you know, beautiful bunny hopping by. So what brought Nicole to the Hawaiian Islands? Ironically, the pursuit of more trash. I was working with a group that was looking at plastic in the ocean. It was like the office aide doing all the random tasks and everybody else was getting to go out and sail. And so I was trying to wiggle my way into that work. You know, learned how to sail and put my time in. And I was invited on a trip that uh, stopped over on Oahu here. So that was my first time to Hawaii fell in love with this place and was also kind of strangely attracted to this problem of the world's trash washing up in this really special remote place. She explained how they do this sort of research in the Pacific Ocean. We had these things called trawls and it's a device that floats on top of the water and then there's a a filter and so you kind of skim the surface of the water and it filters out the plastic so we were collecting samples of water with this filter to see how much plastic was in it. Nicole decided to stay in Hawaii. Just finished my master's degree at the University of Hawaii doing cultural anthropology and I was on an environmental track looking at culture and the environment 
Right now I work with the University of Hawaii System Office of Sustainability and my job there is I'm the Living Lab Coordinator. So I'm helping to build out collaborative systems with students and faculty and staff in the community to use the university as a testing space for different sustainability programs or processes. Nicole has become an expert in plastic wastes in the ocean. As a climate advocate, I confess I've been concerned about plastics, but not fully aware of how much plastic production and waste contribute to greenhouse gas pollution. What are the connections between climate change and plastics? So many connections. The simplest place to start is thinking about what plastic is made out of. So plastic is fossil fuel. And by 2050, the UN estimates that 20% of our fossil fuel budget is going to be used just for plastic. Then we also get into what happens when that plastic starts to break down. So whether it's slowly photodegrading in the sun on a beach somewhere in the ocean, or if it's being incinerated for energy, which is a common way to get rid of trash now, you're releasing that carbon that's been stored. And so it's, it's a similar process of taking this fossil fuel and then releasing the carbon into the atmosphere. We need larger system changes. Changes in in packaging design. We make a a lot of design choices based on the need to advertise goods. And so you find things extravagantly packaged in ways that don't make a lot of sense for some of our, our social and environmental needs. So that's one system that has a lot of potential for change. And there are already tons of solutions with alternate materials to plastic or just slimming down the packaging. I think another system that needs to change is how we manage our trash. Most of what we do is is called reactive waste management or downstream waste management. It's the moment where you decide to intervene after the trash has been created. So that could be recycling, it could be burning the trash, it could be burying the trash. If we were to move towards proactive or upstream waste management and think about our job as municipalities, as humans, to work in that sphere, I think that thought shift would lead to a lot of important systems change. Hawaii is very far from most of us. I live in rural central Pennsylvania, far from the beach. While I have heard a lot about plastics in the Pacific Ocean, I was unaware of plastics in my own community. I turned to Carol Perenzen, the middle Susquehanna riverkeeper. Carol put me in touch with a student at nearby Bucknell University, someone who recently spent a lot of time taking samples of river water in search of plastic. Meet Dominic Chicatano. Dominic grew up in Berwick, Pennsylvania, a town known for really good Italian food. I asked Dominic, what is the best pizza in Berwick? I'm obligated to say my dad's pizzeria because that's what my parents do, Chicatano's. His parents have run this restaurant since before Dominic was even born. The region where we live is sometimes called the Rust Belt. In spite of the magnificent natural beauty around us, the towns can look faded and crumbling. I grew up in a small little neighborhood in Berwick. It was really close to a park, a baseball field. If you drive about three minutes, you'll see cornfields. Lots of cornfields, yeah. My hometown of Berwick, I think, is like a lot of other places in central PA in that agriculture is important, um, and that's definitely visible when you're driving through. 
but I think Berwick is also really a post-manufacturing town a little bit. Kind of has that, dare I say, like rundown feel to it because it used to be a manufacturing town for tanks during the Second World War. But I still always found like some nature growing up. Dominic has spent a lot of time in the Susquehanna River over the past year. I saw suspended sediments sampling being done, so people would kind of wade out into the rivers, and this is what I did with a pretty big cone-shaped net and really high boots <laughs> to try to see how much microplastic was passing through the water at any given moment. I took my samples, I dried them out, put them through multiple sieves of different sizes, and manually sorted uh, all of them. So that was pretty brutal, picking through all this sediment to see what was plastic and what wasn't. Like Nicole... In the Pacific Ocean, Dominic scooped up samples of water, then analyzed what he found. I found uh, what I believe to be plastics at every single site that I visited. And like Nicole, Dominic found tiny man-made particles in the water, including styrofoam. It was one of the first pieces I saw. I remember I was under the microscope and it was like white and like flaky and had like a foamy texture. I was two minutes into picking through my samples and I was like, this is already styrofoam. Took a picture and I shared it with Carol the Riverkeeper and she was understandably upset as well. So that was that was a little bit of like a moment for me. I, I didn't take long for me to see a piece of styrofoam in what's supposed to be clean uh, river water. I saw a good deal of fil film plastics in my samples. So like you can think about things like a plastic bag. You can also think about things that you peel off packaging or bags, just things that are a little bit waxy and thinner and kind of flat. Single-use plastic bags are notorious for catching wind and floating out of, like, landfills. They also, they're buoyant, so they float in water. They're, they travel really, really easily for something that um, is so environmentally disastrous. Films are one kind that I've noticed. I also saw some microbeads, some, some teal, bright blue microbeads, you know, things that you would expect to come out of a face cleanser. I saw a lot of fibers, so these things can be shed from our clothes when we put them in the wash. Like, a polyester fabric can shed... I forget, I forget even the exact figure, but thousands of microplastic fibers in one wash. When you think about that, that's like an input that is so invisible right now. Dominic Chicatano and Nicole Chatterson are thinking about big changes that need to be done. By hearing them both, you might get the idea they despise all plastics and want to ban them outright. I asked Nicole, are you anti-plastic? Well, no. My, my surfboard's made of plastic. The fins on my surfboard are definitely definitely plastic. Pretty sure my phone phone cover is plastic. Um, I think that there's a difference between harnessing and using this material for durable goods and then using this permanent material for single-use items. And it feels not only not ethical to me, but not resource efficient. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It takes a lot of energy to make plastic and then to momentarily use it is where I draw the line. And I, I try and shift my own behavior, but also try and shift systems so that we have other options. In our show notes, you will find links to our guest. I also provide a dig deeper section where you can learn about plastic pollution, waste to energy plants, the Susquehanna River, and much more. Just visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Click on the Citizens Climate Radio link on the menu to the right. Look for episode 35. That link again, 
citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Back in Episode 9, I chatted with Eileen Flanagan. Eileen spoke to us about the four different roles change agents take. And the names we've given them are helper, advocate, organizer, and rebel. And they show up in all kinds of ways. And the way to think of it is really what is their orientation. I want to dig deeper into these roles and have been talking to people who embody them. Later this year, you will hear from a very successful advocate. But on today's show, I chat with a rebel. Eileen explains the role of the rebel. In contrast, a rebel uses disruptive tactics. They don't do letter writing. They don't do lobbying. Instead, they do protest of various kinds. In my tradition, we usually use nonviolent direct action, targeting a decision maker, maybe a corporation, and trying to get them to change a policy through consistent troublemaking. The rebel on today's show comes from England. Meet Robin Boardman. A university student in Bristol, England, Robin is always up for an adventure. Robin's adventures have taken a more political tone recently. What I've been doing in previous months, blockading streets, shouting in the halls of parliament and going on hunger strike, that has definitely been uh, quite a bit of adrenaline going through my system as I do those things because that is just not the person I am. I actually quite like pleasing people and making people happy. But that is not how systems change. Systems change when civil disobedience encounters a system that is is so toxic uh, and it disrupts. And some people will get mad by that and other people will join it because they realize that these people are dedicated and they've been prepared to do what it takes to make something happen. So I guess I get my adrenaline from those these days. Perhaps Robin's most daring action happened last fall. It was one of the first major nonviolent direct action events organized by the group known as Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, so I think one of the most beautiful actions that I've been a part of was the Rebellion Day, November 17th, 2018, when we blocked five of the major bridges in London with around five to 6,000 people. It was a beautiful, crisp morning. Yeah, we're worried about the kind of, you know, if it's going to rain, it would just massively put off the whole action. There was a lot of prep that went into that action from the early hours of the morning, people up and alert, uh, as many will know who have been part of direct action, is that kind of like adrenaline beforehand, which kind of surges through your system and keeps you keeps you awake for what's about to come. And it was just this beautiful still morning when you, when you get to it with all the equipment. There were a large number of police sort of around each of the bridges and coming up and chatting to us as we were preparing beforehand. The beauty of it was that we didn't mind. You know, we knew exactly what we were there to do. They knew what we were there to do. And we were honest about it and we were open about it. And that's a key part of our organizing is to keep that open and and honesty running through what we do. We, we moved as, as one. We had a sort of a briefing circle where we talked about what we were going to do in terms of blocking off the bridge from both ends with small affinity groups, which are, for listeners that don't know, um, 
direct action support groups, people who support an action to happen or, or do the action itself. So these groups then took either side of the bridge. I was on Blackfriars Bridge. I was helping to coordinate the action on that bridge. So on Blackfriars, I think we had about 600, 700 initially. And as the day went on, the, the sort of bridges at the far end um, started to drop off and they would come and meet up with the other bridge to build into a large march that would then go straight to Parliament Square. So as the day went on, we actually got more and more people coming to Blackfriars Bridge because it was close to the square. We were there for roughly five hours, I think, blocking off a major bridge in London, which had a huge disruptive effect on the economy of the city, which is a key thing that we're trying to challenge. You need to challenge a government economically to make something happen. Uh, there's nothing quite like seeing a plan come together. <laughs> so when you saw all these groups take the bridge and then the speakers came onto the middle of it and everyone just sat down in this peaceful moment again on this beautiful clear sky morning, I just felt this massive gratitude around what we have done and what we are, what we are doing. And then we just had a party basically to celebrate what we had just achieved and how we, we were actively in resistance against the UK government and in, in an act of mass civil disobedience not seen for decades in the UK. Extinction Rebellion wants to bring about change. They recognize they do not need to have everyone involved. So building on the research of people like Erica Chenoweth, who recognized that we need 3.5% of the population mobilized in order to create a system change. While they are not proposing any specific solution to climate change, their main goal is to provoke climate action. Extinction Rebellion and those organizing with them have three clear demands. Our first demand to the, to the government is to tell the truth about the climate crisis, about the ecological emergency, and act as if that truth is real and stop hiding from it, <laughs> which is the classic kind of positivism outlook. Western capitalism says the more you get in life, the better it's going to be. and It's going to be a sort of positive uh, incline as you go throughout. And we all know that's not the case. <laughs> um, so that is, that's the, that's the first demand is telling the truth. The second is that the government goes zero carbon by 2025 and starts to draw down some of that carbon that's already in our atmosphere, um, as well as, um, limiting the use of resources across the world to below half the Earth's um, natural resources for a year. And our third demand, finally, is declare a citizens' assembly, to enact a citizens' assembly, which would have the voting rights around how we escape this crisis. So this citizens' assembly would be de decided by a system called sortition, which is essentially the random selection of people across a population that would be representative of that population. In order to compel leaders and society to agree to these demands, Extinction Rebellion takes on the traditional role of the rebel. They exert pressure on leaders in hopes of seeing systems change. And to do so, Extinction Rebellion has very clear values and principles. Things like we are a strictly nonviolent organization, that we build a regenerative culture, a culture of well-being, looking after each other and recognizing that we're in a, a toxic system. 
and other and other principles and values along these lines. And what, but what the key, one of those key values is around autonomy and decentralization. So we are not becoming another sort of NGO type uh, hierarchical organization, but instead we are building a network where those who agree on these principles and values around nonviolence and around autonomy can then go off and create their own groups and take their own actions. In terms of the student strikes that are currently happening, I think it's important that students do go on strike, but I think it's important that they also um, take action. And so we've got some of our groups looking in, in Belgium, for example, uh, and have been recently, not just saying, okay, this is the day to strike on Fridays, this is a day not only strike, but to block off all the roads around our school and say, we're not going to take cars coming in around our school anymore because it's poisoning our lungs. And that's a strong message and one, and one that's heard because of the action that they're taking. Robin and Extinction Rebellion are pursuing profound changes in government and society. To do so, they are organizing people. Quite often, there's this sort of romantic story that people tell about history where if you, know, you want to create a system change, then the people need to rise up and make that change happen. Uh, and, you know, that sounds like, okay, well, the whole population just swings against what it previously was. Well, it's not quite accurate when we know that well, actually what we need is around 3.5% of the population to give a damn. And that's, that's, the, that's the key, is mobilizing to that figure. And so we have our mission set on mobilizing that key failing of the environmental movement for the last 30 years is that the actions have not been properly coordinated around system change. And, and particularly here in the UK, and I'm sure it's similar in, in the States, that lots of environmental groups are focused around local issues, you know, this fracking site near me, this thing over here, and not on the wider system uh, level issues. They have big plans for more actions. So what we're calling for is an international rebellion beginning on the 15th of April uh, and going for at least a week after that and learning on the, on the, from the history of um, civil resistance in the global south, so places like uh, Burma and the Philippines, to use economic disruption as a key tactic in, uh, in, 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 in calling for this change. So we'll be taking to the streets of London in the UK. We already have 1,500 people who said they're going, uh, and I'm, I'm sure those numbers will swell. And we plan to block the streets of London day after day in the major intersections until the government meets our demands. In a time of climate disruptions and an uncertain future, young people are looking for a sense of purpose. This is what spoke to Robin when he first heard about the growing rebellion movement. This felt to a real, a real call to action, something that I could really put my effort and my heart into because I knew that what this was talking about was the right thing and what was needed um, given the situation. You know, I, what I feel is this deep sense of purpose with those around me, um, within you know, within coordinating XR and with all the local groups and others that I've met, uh, worked with, is that we are working towards something greater than ourselves, and that we can commit ourselves fully to that, and that's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. To learn more about the work of Extinction Rebellion, visit their website, rebellion.earth. 
You can also follow them on Twitter at ExtinctionR. Thank you for joining me here at Spirit in Action. I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, insights. You can reach me at the following email, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. You can find Citizens Climate Radio wherever you hear podcasts. You can also find us at northernspiritradio.org. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. Learn more at citizensclimateeducation.org. You can read my blog, see some of my videos, and learn about my touring schedule at my website, petersontoscano.com. In addition to having an intense passion for climate change, I'm also a Bible geek. This spring, I launched a new podcast with my friend Liam Hooper. Liam has been a guest on Spirit in Action before, and he and I created the Bible Bash podcast. Two men, a Southern gentleman and a Northern belle, come together to discuss text. We toggle back and forth between episodes, taking turns to share a Bible story. We then discuss. So far, we've looked at the creation of the earth being, or Ha-Adam, in Genesis chapter 2. We introduce listeners to the other Ethiopian eunuch found in Jeremiah 38. And Liam also shares the moving story of Hagar and her son Ishmael from the book of Genesis. It is amazing how the challenges faced by people in these ancient stories resonate with us today. You can hear Bible Bash podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It's also available on northernspiritradio.org. Thank you, Mark Helps Me, for once again sharing the mic with me. It is always a joy to guest host Spirit in Action. And it's a total joy to have you here, Peterson. As he said, folks, both his Citizens Climate Radio podcast and the Bible Bash podcast that he co-produces with Liam Hooper are available on northernspiritradio.org. The point is, what's important is which way you point your life, and we hope to provide you with the world healing energy and info here on Spirit in Action. So go forth and do the good work, and please don't forget to sit down with us again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 